We're in a series we're calling Back to Basics. We finished up the book of Acts, and the book of uh, Acts really pointed us to say, this is what it means to be the church. A, we always remind people the church is not this building. It's an easy thing for people to refer to, but this is not when the Baptist church, this building could go away in a day, and this church would continue to exist. That you are the church, and God made you into the church, and he called you to be the church, which means that the church doesn't just... Um, exist at 973 River Road. It actually exists in all of these places. So the places you go, the church goes to. And it creates wonderful opportunities for ministry. The second reality that we're going to plug as we go through this is the reminder that every single member of the church is called to ministry. So we don't gather people on Sunday morning. That's not the goal of Wyndham Baptist Church. The goal of Wyndham Baptist Church is to equip every single person to be the church in every single place that we go. So then that means that Jesus is being brought into our community in places that people don't even recognize or understand. They may not welcome, they may not want the church to be involved in their business, but I know they want you to be involved in their lives. It's like our neighbors. They're not ready to come to church. They're not interested in coming on Sunday morning to this hour. But they want us to go on vacation with them. They want to spend time in the church. And that doesn't just happen here. And doesn't happen in my life. What I love is the fact that it happens in all of your lives. Which just means that Jesus is saturating this entire region. So we're talking about what it looks like to be disciples. So the first week we talked about the fact that as Wyndham Baptist Church, our key goal is to be a gospel-centered people. That has to be the key message. We're not about morality for morality's sake. We're about Jesus. We're about good news. And we need to speak the gospel to each other as a church. And we need to speak the gospel to others. That's the key message. So if there's one thing that's going to ring in everything that we sing everything that we say, everywhere that we point each other, whether publicly or in smaller groups, we're supposed to bring the gospel to each other. We need that all the time. Then we spent the last two weeks talking about what it means to be a discipleship culture and the difference that is from what many of us maybe have experienced growing up, maybe going to church. Discipleship is deeply relationship. In fact, my friend Dave Garda says, discipleship is relationships. It's not necessarily a series of books that you've accomplished. Discipleship is relationships, and we pass that on. So if you wanted to go back, you could take a look at those last two weeks. You could listen to those and kind of hear more about what we're saying. But one of the effects that that impacts here at Wyndham Baptist Church is that we have cut down programs to a, a, a definable minimum. Why? One of the key reasons was discipleship happens with believers and non-believers both. And I kept finding in my life that I was waving at my neighbors. All they saw of me in my life was me driving away. They saw the taillights of my car. Because we kept calling people to gather in this building. We kept calling people to leave their communities and come to this building when Jesus has actually called us to be disciple-makers inside of, of, of Gorham, and up in Casco, or in Naples, or in Raymond, or in Wyndham, or in Bridgeton, wherever it is that you're from, 
Jesus has called us to go and to make disciples in those areas. So we don't dislike programs. Obviously, we have the Hope Patient Choir coming in. We like all these kind of things, but we want to make sure that we have enough time to be able to do, to carry out ministry in the places that we live. So we disciple each other, and it's deeply relational. It's life. It's conversations. So, so that's a really a big thing. What we want to talk about then today is the fact that we are defined by God. I'll get into what that means, but if we're going to look at this third characteristic, it's that means we are defined by what God says about who we are as opposed to me being defined by my own uh, thoughts or personality. So let me share a little bit about life. It's going to seem a little ridiculous to you, but I'm a really ridiculous person, and it's kind of just important to be honest about life. So this week, I had a big failure. All right, you don't have to worry about it, but I had, I had a big failure because this week, there's a video game I play. Now, automatically, some of you are like, oh, I can't believe it, please. I do, okay? There's a video game I play, and those two guys in the tech area are stuck in it, and they have to play with me, all right? So it, it's kind of this amazing thing. They're part of my missional community. These are some of my closest friends. We connect all the time. Um, and and there's, there's this competition. It's a week-long thing, and it's a first-person shooter. I hate me for that. But it, we, what, what happens is we have these battles online. And Thursday, I'm in this thing. Now, I know how to do this. I've been doing this for a, a little while. And I'm usually pretty decent at it. But Thursday, literally, I lost 20 matches and only won like five. That doesn't sound like much, but it's, it's awful. It's terrible. It's frustrating. And here I am sitting there playing this electronic video game of something that doesn't actually exist, and I'm a loser. I'm getting crushed. And I am, I'm, I've gone beyond just being like, oh, well, this doesn't bother me. I've gone to the point where I rage quit. And, and uh, you know, again, if you don't know what that is, talk to someone who's under the age of 20. Uh, they know exactly what I'm talking about. But all of a sudden, I'm like, that's it! Boom! And I shut the whole thing on up and I walked away. How many people actually know what I'm talking about? Is there anybody else here? Who... All right, so... I, I share it in a, in a humorous way, but it wasn't humorous. Because all of a sudden... While I'm playing that game, I began to believe something about my identity that was absolutely untrue. I began to believe that my value on the face of the earth depended on whether or not I could accomplish this goal. At that moment, I began to believe lies about what is true about my life. I became sullen. I was frustrated. My whole family could see it. It began to change who I was. Our identity matters. So I was struggling 
there. So one question. Did God change during any of this? When I, when I was losing terribly, did, did anything about God change? Not at all. But how I viewed myself, my identity began to change. So let's just think through. You might sit there and go, oh, well, that's dumb. You shouldn't play video games. Perhaps not. But let's think through this. Um, it's not just video games. Not, not playing video games doesn't solve this, does it? Because if I, if I look through my, um, my life, there's different areas, right? What if, what if I don't look the way my culture tells me I should look? What if I wear the wrong clothes? Or what if my body type doesn't look right? What does that tell me? What's that? Yeah, you're putting yourself down. You begin to put yourself down because you begin to think to yourself what? My culture begins to tell me that maybe I'm ugly. My culture begins to define me. It begins to say, I'm not as valuable as you are because I don't look the way that you look. Uh, Kate Hall, uh, I got to watch a little bit yesterday of the Olympic trials. And uh, if you don't know Kate, great young uh, lady. We're, we're connected with their families, uh, great Christian family. Um, and she was trying out for the Olympic long jump team yesterday. She came in 10th in the nation. That's not bad. But she didn't come in first. So she's not, or, or third. So she's not going to the Olympics this year. But what is the possible ramifications for her? It'd be real easy for her own brain to begin to tell her, hey, because I didn't accomplish this goal, guess what? I'm not valuable. Maybe, maybe for you sit there and go, well, I don't have to worry about long jumps, and I don't play video games, and uh, I don't care how I look. But maybe you sit there when you look at your kids, and maybe, maybe at that moment you're in a restaurant, and you've got your kids, and you've got that one kid who decides that this is the time to just melt down. At that point, parent, how do you feel? Do you feel like a really great parent? Do you feel like you've really got the world by the tail? No, isn't it easy to begin to believe something that's not true about my identity? What if you lose your job? What if you've been working all these years and you've saved your money, but suddenly you lose your job, whether it's your fault or someone else's fault, but you lose your job? What begins to happen inside of your soul? There can be these messages, these, 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 these words that begin to say to you, you're not a good provider. What are you going to do? How are you going to take care of this situation? So we, we go through all of these types of things, and again, more. Hopefully you can kind of extrapolate. You sit there and say, well, I don't have anything with those ones, but man, I know what it's like here when my marriage ended. Or somebody else who sits there and says, I know what it's like to deal with my... Um, my habit or my addiction, or you have somebody else that sits there and says, man, I know what it's like in, in this area of my life. When we base our identity on what we're doing, or let me say it this way, on what others are doing, we end up in emotional turmoil. Let me just show you that real quick in Ephesians chapter 4, 13, 14. Uh, then we're going to jump to Genesis. So that's easy. If, you, you know, if, you're, if you're looking around, you'll be able to find that one. 
But uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 13 through 14, this hits on this whole concept of discipleship. It hits on the whole concept of what we're saying that as a church is so important to us. But let's look at verses uh, 13 and 14, Ephesians chapter 4. I encourage you, you should read this chapter regularly so you understand what the point of the church is and why we're supposed to exist. But um, he says there, he talks about the fact that God gave us these gifts, gifts of apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. Those are gifts that are inside the church for, for all of us. Uh, when we go to verse 13, though, it says this, it says we were given them so they could help us to, so that those types of people, those gifts would help equip all the saints to do the work of ministry is what it says there in 12. So verse 13 says, until we all attain to unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So what happens? When I listen to my culture, when I listen to even what my heart tells me about my value, I end up just getting pushed left and right. In other words, on Monday morning, I might feel like I am the best at whatever it is that I'm doing in my life. Like the world is all pulled together. But by Monday afternoon, one little thing can change and suddenly I'm, I'm all over the map. Now I hate my life. When we allow our identity to be determined by our circumstances or by my culture or if I allow my identity to be determined by my golf score, or if I allow my, my, my identity to be determined by, by any of these types of things, I'm going to be moving all over the place. I'm not going to be supposed to be where I'm supposed to be. I am supposed to be defined by God. The question is, is how well do we do with that right now? Are we allowing ourselves to be defined? So let's turn back to Genesis uh, chapter 1. And I want to just show you this concept, uh, and then um, we, can, we can apply this out, okay? So Genesis chapter 1, we're going to begin at verse 26. This should be a fairly common uh, section of Scripture for a lot of people. Uh, pretty much anyone who's read the Bible probably gotten about this far into it. Um, so, you know, it might sound familiar, all right? So then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who's he talking to? Okay, yeah, so, so we know that God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have always lived in community together. God has never been alone. God has never been isolated. When God speaks, he, he, he lives in relationship with, with himself. So when he speaks, he, he speaks this way. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them and God blessed them. That's a pretty powerful word, isn't it? Did you ever notice that before? God blessed them. And God said to them, notice what God does, the first section, then we're going to find out what God says, right? He says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea 
and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth and everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for you for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was what? It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. Whose image are we made in? Who defined your image? God did. Who has the right to define your image? God does. And what did God say about the way that he made human beings? It was very good. Everything else he said was good, but the one thing that he said was very good was the way he made human beings. This is the way that it was supposed to be. Now let's admit, remember, we'll come back to this, but this is before the catastrophe, before the fall. But when God made human beings, what was his reaction? Was there an Adam 2.0? You know, there would have to be after the catastrophe. But God created and said, this is what I want. So let's, let's think through here. Let me ask a couple questions, and you guys can, can answer some of these here. What, what's God's work? What's God's word in this situation? What do you see that God has done here? What do you see about who God is when you look at this passage? So I just remind people, you can actually look in the book and, and, and see some of these things. But what? What has God done here? Or who is he? Someone who gave us our lives. So here we have God who's the creator, right? The one who gives us breath and life. Awesome. What else? What else do you see about who God is here? He does it perfectly. Amen. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Amen. Amen. What else do you see in the passage? What else do you see about God? Yeah. He's a relational God. He, he, he's deeply connected. Awesome. What else do we see? Yeah, think about the creativity. The, yeah, so the reasoning, the thinking, the creativity that are, that are all involved in this whole thing. Instead of creating from another template, you know, I, I can make creative things when I see what someone else has done and kind of twist what they've done. But, but God actually, straight out creative, just made this. Awesome. Yeah, so God's a provider in here. And we also see him giving specific instructions. So, so like Tim said, that relationship then leads to him saying, let me tell you what the very best way that you can live is. Isn't that amazing to think about God saying, let me tell you what life is all about. Let me tell you what I made this for. Anything else that you see about who God is in this passage or what he's done? 
He does. He wants to multiply. He wants to lead out and, and stretch and, and, and expand this. So he wants to see this multiply. He spoke and it happened. Wouldn't that be awesome? Thankfully, I can't do that. Thankfully, it's only God who can do that. But there's a lot of things I talk about doing that I don't get to. Right? But God speaks and it actually happens. Anything else that you see in here? When God gives them authority, what right does he have to do that? Because notice he says, I'm going to give you all these things. I'm going to give you all this creation. What does that tell us about who God is? Yeah, he's in charge. He's the king, isn't he? He has the absolute authority to actually give that authority to others, to empower his people to do what he's called them to do. We, we look at this passage and we find out, not, say, what human beings were, and now human beings are something completely different. What we find out is what human beings are, it's just been twisted by the fall. What will we be someday? Let me remind us. We will be sanctified. We will be holy. We will be glorified. We will be back to this again. So we don't totally negate this. Instead, we sit there and say, this is what human beings are made for in the image of God. So let me just, Jeff Ferstelt wrote this. He said, this is how it always works. Everything you or I do always comes out of what we believe about God, about God's word, and God's work. Our behaviors reveal what we believe about these things. So when I'm playing a video game and I become uh, visibly frustrated and upset at that moment, what do I believe about God? I don't believe that he's the king. I don't believe that he is loving. I don't believe that he's relational. What do I believe at that moment? I believe that God has failed me. And if he really loved me, the game would go my way. Amen? So now you think through in your life. Now, this is not the heart work we typically do. What's the heart work I typically do? I get about that far into it, and I just sit there and say, I don't like this. And that's as far as I go. I don't like that slow person driving in front of me. I don't want them there. I don't like that neighbor making noises. I don't like thunderstorms. I, you know, I, I want sunshine every day. Uh, wh whatever it is, we look at it and we think, that's what... I now, what am I defining that by? Yeah, what I like, what I feel. And how well has that worked for us? Let's be honest, not well. Because some of the stuff I want, when I get it, what happens? I don't want it anymore. Right? I wanted the wrong thing. This is the story of humanity. So... Yep, great, Ray. Awesome. So we love, we love discovering. Here's God being this provider, knowing 
that it needs to have rivers. It needs to have water to flow throughout the area there. Our identity needs to be defined by God. So let's do what we need to do. Let's look at chapter 3, though. Because what happens in chapter 3? Let's look at verses 1 through 6. Here we have God saying everything is very good. Here we have God saying this is your identity. This is what life really looks like. This is what I want you to be. But in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So he said to the woman, Did God actually say? What does he begin to do? He begins to question God's word. We're going to find out he also begins to question God's works. And he wants to call into question God's character. Did God really say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice he twists God's words. The woman says to the serpent in verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes, they're going to be open. And you'll be like God, knowing good. And evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and she ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Satan calls into question who God is. He questions God's word. Is God really truthful? Can you really depend on him? God questions God's works. He says, you will actually be like God. But let's think about this for a second. Weren't they already like God? Adam and Eve were already like God. They were what? Created in God's image. God said they were complete. God said that they were good. But when Satan began to call them to define their own identity they forgot that they actually fell for this where satan said i want to sell you something you've already got satan sat there and said god's lying to you he's holding out and if you do this you get to define who you are forget letting god tell you who you are let's do this ourselves Now, we never hear that in our culture today. Right? There's no call to defining myself and not allowing anybody else to tell me who I am. there's There's no call to me getting to feel like I am whatever I want to be, and you can't contradict me on that, is there? Of course there is. But God had already given them all that they needed to do everything that He called them to do He had provided for them. He was there for them, relationally close to them. But Satan was calling them to find their identity apart from God. You can be your own God. You can be who you want to be on your own terms. Bottom line, guys, we don't have to be anything more than what God made us to be. We don't have to be anything more 
than what God made us to be. And you know what? We can actually rest in that. We, as a church, are striving to let God define who we are. That's going to impact the way that we work. It's going to impact the way that we speak to each other. All Adam and Eve had to do was to believe God. All they had to do was rest in who God is. All they had to do was to believe what God said. All they had to do was believe that He was strong enough to do the work. But since this time, humanity has tried to define their value by their work. I'll just be honest again. Video games are one thing, but being a pastor is another really big one. You're constantly brought the image of somebody else. You're constantly told, you're not really a good pastor because you don't have thousands of people flocking to get to your church. You're constantly told uh, in, in perceptible and imperceptible ways that what you're doing isn't valuable. Can't tell you the number of pastors. I was just reading this a week, this this week, uh, uh, something that a friend of mine wrote, and he was at the pinnacle kind of of his career. He was uh, one of the one of the lead guys in one of the largest churches in the United States. One of the churches that every other church tends to go to to say, "Hey, how do I get to be like you?" And yet, as he was doing his job, he said he began to struggle even with thoughts of suicide. Because he couldn't do enough. And I know I get to wage this battle often. Just in my soul. You talk to somebody and they say, well, how many people do you have in your church? A hundred? Oh, I'm sorry. It, it doesn't matter, but that's that's the subtle thing. You get the uh, the Tom Brady's of the preaching world, where you know you got a few just freaks that are out there, and and the way they preach is amazing, you know. And and you you, you get compared to them, like oh yeah, well you know, and you're kind of like oh thanks, uh, you know. Now that's what can happen in my life. I know the same happens in yours. At work, you've got quoted numbers. And you get compared to everybody else in the store. And you get to find out whether or not you're good enough or worth it by what happens by those numbers. Or maybe as a dad, you know, when that grown son comes back to you and they, they say some things that are so heartful. I was... I was I've been reading the biography of Steve Jobs recently, and uh, the one thing he regretted in his life, probably more than anything, was when he went to college, he made his parents pre- not come to the campus. He made them pretend that they were not his parents because he wanted to be able to come in there and be uh, this, this kind of drifter, this kind of loner, this kind of guy. And he said, my parents worked so hard he said, there's one thing I regret, it's that. 
Imagine being his dad who sacrificed so much so his son could go to this school and then have your son just turn his back on you that way. That's not speaking the identity of God. Guys, it's pretty rare for us to have people who bring us back to who, what God says about us, about who He says He is. The diet commercial or the exercise workout video on TV is probably not going to tell me that. It's very unlikely, even in some of our marriages, that that's going to happen. When we think through this, we've got some choices as a church. We can either sit there and say, okay, I want my kids to be successful and I want them to have a bank account and I want them to make sure that they're going to be stable. I want the world to look at my child and I want them to say, that is a good kid. Or, I can say, I want my child to really know who God is and what God says is true. I want them, more than anything, by the grace of God, to believe what God says about them. That's what I want. And will I speak that into their life? Or will I point out to them how they could be a better athlete, or how they could be a better student, or how they could be a better whatever? Unfortunately, in in so many of our lives, what we've heard has not been who God is and what He does and who we are because of Him. In so many of our lives, what we've heard is how we could just be better. If we would just do this next thing, if we would go to this camp, if we would just work a little harder, if we would take some sort of like a, a pill that would make our memory a little more sharp, if I would just lose 20 pounds if I would just do all these kind of things, then my life would count. The biblical picture here, the calling on our lives is to be a group of people, like we saw in Ephesians chapter 4, where each of us makes it our goal to speak truth into each other's lives so that when we're losing a video game or when we feel like we're losing our marriage. We have a terminal diagnosis of cancer. Or when our car breaks down. That we are learning how to point each other to who God is and what He's done so that my identity can be defined because God doesn't define my identity by what I do, does He? He defines it by who He is. And that's massive. So let me just give you um, a, a little example of that. Let's think about Abram. Okay, so this is going to happen in Genesis uh, chapter 15. Uh, you can turn there. We will just take a look at a couple of verses. Uh, this is just to illustrate what we're talking about here. Genesis chapter 15. Abram. Verses 5 and 6, God's called him. What do we know about Abram? How many kids does he have? None. Okay. And yet God comes to him and he says this. 
God brought him outside, chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 5. He brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven, number the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Who's defining Abram? And what is God defining Abram as? A father, a father of great nations. God is identifying him. God is saying, this is what's true of you, even though you have nothing to prove it. And Abram, verse 6, believed the Lord. And God counted that to him as righteousness. That was the right use of his life, to believe God instead of what he saw or felt or whether circumstances were working out the way that he wanted it to. The key portion of the Christian life is to believe God the way he identifies. So let's, let's jump over to chapter 17. Uh, I'm not in any way going to say that Abram was perfect at this. In fact, it's a rather ironic that while it says he believed God, he struggled to believe God, just like we do. And I find it ironic that even though God told him his identity, remember, he lied about his wife's identity. Oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. I'm not saying that he did this perfectly, but what we're being called to here is a question. Will I define my identity by what God says or not? So in chapter 17 here, verse 5, we we pick this up, it says this, um, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. How many kids does he have at this point? Zero. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. What does Abraham have to do here? He has to believe God's character. He has to believe what God's words are. And he has to believe that what God does. We need to embrace who God is, what He says, and what He does. When God speaks truth, it is true even before it happens. You might sit there and say, I don't feel very holy. You might say, I don't feel really loved right now. I don't feel chosen. Colossians chapter 3, right? Verse 14. Holy, chosen dearly loved. I don't feel any of those things. Guess what? What God's calling us to, though, is to believe Him. What God's calling us to is to trust Him. To listen to Him. God doesn't base who I am on what I do. He bases it on what Jesus has done. And that's going to be a battle. But if, as a church, we can embrace that, if I can look at you and not see you for where you annoy me, if I can look at you and not see you for your imperfections, if I can look at you and not see and communicate to you, you know, where where if you just did these one or two things, you'd really be a great person. If I can look at you and instead I can see this is what is true of you because this is what God has said. And what I want to do is see how can I hear 
what's happening in your life? And how can I flow this into your life? How can I bring this to you? How can I remind you of this in your low point today? Then I will be doing something that matters so much. And when you do the same, you will be acting out of who you truly are. Criticism is not a spiritual gift. Even though it seems like in the church, that's like if you had to do spiritual gift tests, I would say that there's a lot of people out there scoring pretty high in the criticism gift. Let me tell you where you're wrong. Let me tell you what you need to do to improve. Let me tell you what, you know, let me nitpick. Let me be an engineer and show you what, what, what failed. It's not the high value that God holds up. But the high value that God holds up is the person who can come alongside and can help. So a key question for us today, just to wrap this up, is are we basing our identity on what Jesus has done or are we basing our identity on what you've accomplished? What defines you today? Practically, here's a couple of things that we can do. First, embrace that joyful responsibility. What I mean by that is Spend time in the Word. Pray. Honestly, um, sense that every single thing that you do is meant to be an act of worship to God. Seek to serve and to spread love and to sacrifice so that you can, you can help people feel loved. When we do that, those are the four things we talked about as a disciple, these, these four kind of actions of a disciple, these four ingredients that should be part of our life. When I do that, number one, my soul is fed. I'm reminded who God is. I'm reminded of God's truth. My identity more naturally goes back to saying, what does God say my identity is versus what I do? But there's a second level to that, isn't there? When I do those things, it's also because God wants me to bring that to you. That's my joyous responsibility. I get to be like the UPS man of God's grace. I get to show up. I don't get the great uniform, but I get to show up. And, and there's times where you're reading through the Word. You're, you're spending time in the Word of God. There's a, a truth that comes out about who God is, and it kind of lands, and you sit there and go, I don't, I don't get I don't need that. Isn't it amazing how often someone else walks in, and that is exactly what they need? And you get, oh, this is for you. It's got your name on it. I get to give this to you. When you do that, you're a shepherd. You're a pastor at heart. You're doing the work of ministry. Yeah, they may not write books about you, and you may not get on the front of Christianity today for doing that, but you know what? You will make a difference. You might bring that truth to your four-year-old. You might bring that truth to your 80-year-old. We need to embrace that responsibility. Second thing, develop the skill of humbly coming alongside Develop the skill of humbly coming alongside. Be a gospel coach who's skilled at listening, prayerfully considering, and then being intentionally intrusive in other people's lives to be a voice that God wants to speak. Notice I use the words intentionally intrusive. I know as New Englanders, especially northern New Englanders, there is one line you're not supposed to go past. 
I am not supposed to be intentionally intrusive in your life. I'm supposed to wait for you to ask me to be there. The gospel doesn't want us to wait. Again, notice the other words in there. Humble, prayerful, a coach, a listener, prayerfully considering. So this is not your right if you're that major truth teller who loves to just go in and tell everybody where they're wrong. This is that, that's not the calling here. The calling is to sit there and say, Jesus, is there something I see in their life? I'm picking up a dissatisfaction. I'm picking up that there is a tone where they are just, they're frustrated. I'm picking up something that's going on in their life and I don't know what it is. And unless I come close to you, unless I connect with you, unless I ask questions and listen to you, I won't know how to bring the gospel to your life. But if there's one skill that I would encourage us to grow in, it's that one. Third one I'll just say is this. So again, embrace that responsibility. Develop the, the skill of being a, of humbly coming alongside of others. Third one, invite others into your life. Do we ever do this? This is such a not New England thing to do. Hey, do you see any areas of my life that concern you? Have you ever asked someone that question? Someone you love and trust, have you ever asked them that? Have you gone to people and said, look, I need friends because I struggle with my identity a lot. Would you just be part of my life? Or when we're struggling, what I should have done when I was struggling with those video games, I should have gone right up to Tracy and just said, hey, I am really struggling right now. Now, my ego is way too weak for that. So I didn't do it. What did I do? I stomped around like an angry bear. You know, that really solved things. That helps a lot, right? (laughs) It feels like it solves things, but it doesn't fix anything. But wouldn't it be amazing to be the person who could actually say to somebody, hey, something's off. Would you help me? The the fourth thing is we're going to go to communion now. Your identity is wrapped up in this symbol. 